This is a Saddleback Church podcast. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books chronicle the very beginning of the story of God's great plan, his desire to have a family. In these books, we see the creation of the universe, the creation of all living things, God's decision to be personal and relational, his promises, the stories of the early church fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see the enslavement of the Hebrew people in Egypt, and we see God use Moses to set them free. We see a people learning what it means to love God and know him better as they continue moving towards the land God had promised. In today's episode, we are going to navigate through how to read the Pentateuch. My guest today is Dr. Charlie Trim, Associate Professor and Chair of Old Testament at Biola University. In this conversation, we will be unpacking everything that you need to know to better equip you as you read through this beginning section of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. My name is Jason Wheeland, and this is a Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast, part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Now, my conversation with Dr. Charlie Trim. All right, Dr. Charlie Trim, thank you so much for joining me today as we're talking about navigating the Pentateuch. How are you doing today? Doing very well. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. So could we start by um, asking you to set the stage for us as we look at the Pentateuch? So what can you tell um, our listeners right now just about, about the, the author of this section, maybe the time frame that these books are being written? Kind of what are the basic important details that people should know maybe before they crack open their Bibles to the very beginning and uh, embark on this first section of the Bible? Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about authorship of the Pentateuch. Uh, in the ancient Near East, authors were not very important. And so it was more about who authorized it rather than who authored it. And so with the Pentateuch, we're not entirely sure who wrote it, just like much of the Old Testament. Moses seems to be, at least at some stage of the writing of it, uh, important because there's text about him writing various parts of it. Uh, but we're not sure on the details of that or anything. The date is also not entirely clear. We do know that David and Solomon lived around 1000 BC, and these stories happened several centuries before that. And so that could be kind of a general time frame of 1200, 1300, 1400, depending how you date Exodus and some other things, but several centuries before David and Solomon, somewhere around, say, 1300 BC would be the time frame, which is basically a really long time ago. <laughs> and for those listening in the United States, it's a long ways away as well. So that's one of the important things. Remember, as we read these books, is they come from a very different kind of cultural and historical context than we're used to. No, I think that's important because people, I, I found at least through having conversations with people, maybe they haven't read their Bibles before and they're just kind of getting into it. 
is you is you usually automatically kind of put yourself into the play into the story and you're thinking of it in your context of where you are but that reminder that we're talking about a near eastern cultural context environment setting you know thousands of years ago it kind of uh, you know if you don't wrap your head around that then you might start putting uh, you know having a a little bit more of a difficult time <laughs> to piece it together so having that context is important so so with that idea talking about the near east talking about thousands of years ago maybe what is it about the cultural context that would be helpful for readers to know about these five books yeah, so to answer this question, it would take hours and hours and hours. <laughs> now, lots of different things we could talk about. I mean, one of the most important things to remember just uh, is is different. And so, like you just said, reading these books, constantly reminding ourselves, we can't just read our own cultural context into these stories and laws and so on. It's a very different kind of place. And so just remembering that it's different and helping us ask perhaps different kinds of questions and not assuming things is really important. Maybe one example I could give is the function of law. Mm. So as we think of law today, it tends to be we have law codes and we only think about law when we break a law. And we tend to have this kind of perhaps fearful attitude towards law, like how can I avoid breaking it and so on. And law has some functions like that in ancient areas, but it's more revelatory. So kings would write a law. So like Hammurabi's law is the most famous but it's to tell people something about him. Who Who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you about myself by writing this, this law. And so the laws are more about who wrote the law, like who authorized it. Let's learn about King Hammurabi rather than something to actually follow. Although that's still an important part. So when you look at law in the ancient Near East and then thinking about it in the context of the Old Testament, it's primarily revelatory about the one who gave the law. That is Yahweh. And so as you read some of the the laws in the Old Testament, it's primarily, what can we learn about God through this? How is God revealing himself through this law? And so I think that can be really important as we especially get to texts like the second half of Exodus and Leviticus, where people kind of give up, is as as you read these, what are we learning about God through this? How is God revealing himself? Because I think that's the primary function of the law. Oh, that's a fascinating way to look at it. And I think that's, I think that's helpful because especially as you get through Exodus, a lot of people may tend to fall off a little bit. You get to Leviticus, you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy and you start kind of go, huh, like I'm kind of uh, just walking through uh, a whole section of stuff that isn't necessarily uh, entertaining to be reading through. But when you put this lens in place, and if you're like, okay, this section of the Bible is really an opportunity to see God revealing himself to man. And we, in, in that reminder that these are, these are still early accounts of the history of humanity, walking through Genesis into Exodus and Leviticus, we're still, you know, fairly early on in the course of human history. And so this is God's opportunity or he, I should say, he takes this opportunity to say, "Hey, I, I have this. I have you as these people who I love, and I want to reveal myself to you." And in that cultural context at the time, the way that it was done was through law, and I find that I find that fascinating. So, for those people, as we're talking about the Israelites at the time, what was 
What did they learn about the law? Is there something specific that we see that 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 helped them understand God? Which part? I should ask it this way. Which part resonated in such a way that kind of changed their view of God and helped them in in a new way than maybe they had ever before? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a whole lot of things could be said here as well, but one major one would be the graciousness of God, that mm. God wants to be in a relationship with them. And so, for example, the sacrificial laws in Leviticus, they can get pretty dry if you don't know what's happening. But much of what's driving that is God wanting to be in relationship with his people and God giving them ways to be in relationship with him. And so what we see over and over again is God's in relationship with his people and desiring to be in relationship. And so uh, Exodus 34 is a great example of that, of God who is compassionate and gracious and so on. And so this is the kind of God that the Israelites serve and who has revealed himself. So there's prayers from elsewhere in the ancient Near East of people who know they have offended a deity, but they don't know which deity it was, and they don't know (laughs) what they did to make the deity upset. And so that's the kind of thing that's not going to happen in the Old Testament. Like God has revealed himself. They know who he is and they know what kind of God he is. And they know how they should live to live the kind of life of flourishing that God created them to live. And so this revelation of God to his people helps them know who he is and what life is like that God wants them to have. I, I love how you give us that reminder or that or, or that encouragement that what we're seeing and learning about is the graciousness of God. Because a lot of people, when they think of Old Testament, they think of a not gracious God. They see a, a wrathful God or an angry God sometimes. And, and, and there's always that question of like, why is God so different from the Old Testament and the New Testament? And, and people who are just reading the Bible for the first time and maybe get that sense. But when you put it in that context that this law was given to show God's graciousness, to show his mercy and his love. And that's, that's I think, incredibly helpful for people. So if you're listening to this and you're reading through, especially this section of the Old Testament, and you're like, man, why does God seem mean or, 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 or what's happening? Try to see it through this lens that we were just talking about of that if we if we really think of it as God providing a way God is gracious and he offers this sacrificial system as a way to atone for sins and and you start to see it in that context then maybe it changes your perspective a little bit and then we'll talk a little bit about how we see some new testament themes um in here too but i think i i just think that's really helpful to keep in mind so so we've talked a little bit about the law, especially around the cultural context. And uh, I, I did want to make this point because you brought this up and I wanted to hit it home again, is that when you are reading this section and you keep reading about la, 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 <laughs> not la, 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 like singing, but la, la, <laughs> la, I realized what I did there. Um, it's, it's common for us to just think about all of these r- rules for us to not do, right? Like when you go to take your driver's test, you have to know all of the rules of the road, things that things to not do in order to keep people safe and to let you be able to drive your car. Um, but back then, the law, as, as you said, was revelatory. It was also a way to show people how to live. It wasn't just a bunch of 
don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, just because a lot of the time it was, it was, hey, don't do this because we want to be a people like this, because we are called to live like this. It was laws for, not necessarily just laws against. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. so God calling for justice, God calling for people to live in communities the way he wants them to set up. So it's it's all about life giving. How can yeah. we live the life that God wants us to have? That's what the law is about. I love that life giving law. I think that's I think that's a great term to think about, especially as you're reading through the Old Testament part. So I wanted to ask you then is we've talked about law, but is there another sort of general theme of the Pentateuch? And it is in how might knowing this theme um, help somebody read this section of, of the Bible? I think one of the most important themes in the Pentateuch would be the Abrahamic covenant and how God has promised something to Abraham and his descendants. So there's three main aspects to that promise of land, seed, and blessing. And so the rest of Genesis, in a sense, after Genesis 12, when God gives Abraham that promise, is dangers to that promise. And so that's one of the lenses you can read, especially Genesis through, but the entire Pentateuch as well, is how is this promise going to be fulfilled? Is God really going to be faithful? And there's all these kinds of problems. And sometimes they're internal from Abraham himself or a descendant. Sometimes they're external, but there's all these issues. So like they're in service to Pharaoh. How are they going to get mm -hmm. the land if they're in slavery in Egypt or Abraham moving himself to Egypt or ex these kings coming in Genesis 14, all these problems, is God really going to be faithful? And so what we see in the Pentateuch is two out of those three things being fulfilled. So we have the people, the seed, the Israelites expand greatly over the course of the five books. And we have blessing to some extent. So Joseph, for example, is a great blessing, both to Egyptians as well as to the Canaanites. I mean, the Canaanites get food in this famine um, because of what Joseph did and a variety of other ways. Israel is a blessing. But the big one that's left hanging is land. And mm. so when you end Deuteronomy, there still is a question mark. And I think that's really helpful for us because often God makes promises and it seems like there's all these issues and problems. Is God really going to be faithful? Mm. And as you end Deuteronomy, that question is still there. And that's kind of where we find ourselves quite often as God made these promises, but we have to wait. And so the Pentateuch ends on this note of waiting until we get to Joshua to answer that question a little bit more. Mm. I, I, I think it's important that we talk about these covenants as just such an important section of what we're talking about with the Pentateuch. Because when you're thinking about the creation of mankind and the beginning of Genesis, the story could still go either way in theory. You could have a God who sets things in motion and then just kind of kicks back and just does his own thing and just isn't involved as a, is an unrelational, impersonal God. But what we see early on in the story of the Bible and God's story is he says, no, I am a relational God. I am a personal God and I want to have relationship with you. And we see that as early on with these covenants. We see the covenant that God makes with Noah. Uh, I'm not going to flood the earth again. We see God make this covenant with Abraham of 
you will have descendants that will outnumber the stars, right? And and these are both places of God saying, I am with you and I want to be with you. And that's that sets the tone, that that's the sets the story up for the whole rest of the Bible. And I just love calling out that theme to say, make make careful note of these covenants, these times where God is stepping in early on in the story of man and say, I'm making it known right here, right now, early as early as possible that I am here with you and that we are in this together because, you know, because God wants a family. And this is the whole story of the Bible is God's family getting to know him and God carrying his family through um, all the trials and tribulations that come with being a broken people in a broken world. And um, we see that from the very beginning. Yeah, definitely emphasis on God wanting to be with his people and then his people being a blessing to the world, Abrahamic covenant as well. So it's not just he chose Israel because he's given up on everyone else. Yeah, He's saving the world through Israel. Uh, and, and so we see that in a variety of ways in the Old Testament and then coming to fruition through Jesus in the New Testament as well. So, yeah, seeing God's love in a variety of ways in the Pentateuch is pretty important. Can you talk a little bit about about that land piece in, is specifically? Because, as you mentioned, land is an important part of what we see in the Old Testament, especially. There's a lot about land, and, and that has to deal with the cultural context of Near Eastern life, too. So can you talk a little bit about how about why that idea of land is so important, plays such a central role through a lot, <laughs> through, through pretty much the whole of the, new, of the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah, so this land promise is left unfulfilled in Deuteronomy, and then it's partially fulfilled in Joshua. Yeah. They don't get all of the land. And even under David and Solomon, they still don't get all of the land. And so the land promise is never totally fulfilled in the Old Testament. Uh, in ancient Near East, one of the interesting things is that gods are more connected to lands than they are to people. So if a people leave a land, then the conquerors who come in, they start worshiping that deity. Mm. And so it's not as if that deity has been defeated but they now want to worship the deity that belongs to that land. Mm. And so that's one of the shocking things about, say, Ezekiel, is Ezekiel has this image of Yahweh leaving the land to go be with his people. And so Yahweh is more connected to his people than with the land. But the way the land functions with Israel, I think it, it's important geographically for several reasons. Uh, one is the land of Canaan that God gave to Israel is a part of the ancient Near East where people travel through all the time. So it's well trafficked. Everyone wants this land. And so there's the sense of God revealing himself to the world, not by sending Israel out to talk to everyone, but by putting Israel in a place where everyone walks through the land of Canaan anyway. And so they learn about Yahweh through its centrality. But at the same time, even though everyone wants this land, it's not a land that can support an empire. And so if God wanted Israel to be a powerful empire, he could have given them Egypt or Mesopotamia or something like that. But the land of Canaan, just geographically, because of how it's set up, it can't support a large empire. Mm. And so I think he intentionally made Israel weak as a way to help Israel trust him more. And so there's all this theological truth that we can learn, in a sense, geographically through this land that God has given Israel as well. 
if you haven't yet, I would encourage you listening to go to one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of maps at the end <laughs> and, and check out a lot of Bibles have maps of the, especially old Testament land. And you can see these different areas that we're talking about and you can see, see Egypt down usually on the bottom and, and you can see this land uh, of Canaan that we've been talking about and you can just see what it looks like and you can see, Oh yeah. Like, that that is just this kind of piece of land. It's kind of right there in in the middle. But as you said, not set up to be able to you know uh, spread out and, and be conquerors of all because that's not what God was calling people to. And so um, you can also you know see um, how as you continue to read through the Old Testament, how it can be uh, easy for all these other empires to come and to take over <laughs> in different areas. So check out those maps if you haven't yet, because getting that sense, getting that picture, that context is incredibly helpful, especially for something as you're talking about this theme of land that is so important and so prevalent through the whole Old Testament. I mentioned a little bit ago, and I want to come back to it, that I wanted to talk about some parallels between what we see in the Pentateuch and maybe what we see through the rest of the Bible, but in particular through the New Testament. People, a lot of people have read the New Testament, maybe they haven't made it through the Old Testament. So I'm thinking of you right now, if that is, if that is your case, uh, what would be helpful to know either about the later parts of the Old Testament or the New Testament to, as we, what's helpful to keep in mind as we're reading through the Pentateuch, maybe for the first time? Yeah, the Abrahamic Covenant plays a major role in the rest of the Old Testament, but also New Testament. So Jesus is the, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in the Abrahamic Covenant, especially in blessing to the world. Uh, but one I can focus on right now is from Exodus. I'm writing a commentary on Exodus, so I think about Exodus all the time. Perfect. Bring it. <laughs> Exodus is just everywhere in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So, for example, Exodus 34, 6, the statement about God being gracious and compassionate, that's kind of the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. It gets quoted all over the place in the Old Testament. And so when you start looking for it, uh, you can see it over and over again. Uh, one of my favorite quotations of it is actually a negative quotation by Jonah, hmm. uh, because at the end of Jonah, the people of Nineveh are not destroyed, and Jonah's upset with God. <laughs> and he quotes Exodus 34 to God and says, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I knew you were gracious and compassionate. It basically quotes Exodus 34, 6. I knew you'd forgive them, and so that's why I didn't want to go. Hmm. And so it's a sense of Jonah learning about the full extent of God's kindness. But then, we have the sense of, of course, Exodus as God rescuing his people. So one of the major themes of Exodus, I think, is service. This Hebrew word is avad. So in the beginning of Exodus, they're slaves of Pharaoh, they're avadim of Pharaoh. But then God says, I want you to leave so that you can serve me. And Hebrew is the same word. So I want you to serve me, no longer be slaves of Pharaoh, but, but serve me. And then he brings them out. And then the law at the end is how they are supposed to live out that life of service. And the tabernacle is the place of that service. And so that word connects much of Exodus together. And so in the rest of the Old Testament, we have other examples of similar Exoduses in a sense. And so the, the return from exile is viewed as a second Exodus. And then 
Uh, Jesus refers to Exodus kinds of ideas occasionally. One of the clearest references is Paul in the book of Romans, where he says, you used to be slaves of sin, but now you you can serve God. And so drawing on that same that same wordplay, you used to be these slaves of something else, but God has rescued you, but not rescued you to do whatever you want, rescued you in order to serve him. And so that's what we're saved for is to serve God. And so when you start looking for that kind of language that shows up all over the place in both Old Testament and New Testament as well. Yeah, it's good to keep in mind that, especially for this Jewish audience, when when the New Testament um, apostles are speaking to a Jewish audience, Jewish tradition, it holds very tightly to their history, to those historical events that are found in the Torah or found in the Pentateuch. And so there's a lot of callbacks to re- remember what God did for you and pulling you back to that. It, because for, especially for that culture, the history and tradition is plays a major role. So as apostles, there's a lot of harking back to to the history of the Jewish people. Uh, for for our, our listeners who who may not um, know this, can, can you explain the role that the Pentateuch plays for the Jewish religion? Yeah, it's foundational. So these five books are really important uh, for Jewish tradition, just in a variety of ways. The, the Samaritan group is the extreme of this, so because they take only these five books as inspired, and the rest of the Old Testament is kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of Jewish tradition does acknowledge the canonicity of the rest of the Old Testament, but still, these five books are the most foundational ones, the ones talked about the most by far in later Jewish tradition. And we get to the New Testament, the, the book of Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Like it's just all over the place and Exodus themes are everywhere. And so these books are are vital for understanding both the early New Testament church as well as later Jewish tradition. Uh, there's foundational in so many ways. I realize I probably should have asked you this earlier. We mentioned a name earlier in our conversation, and we didn't really spend a whole lot of time talking about him. So let's talk about Moses, because he's probably one of the largest figures <laughs> in this section of the Bible. So what can you tell us about Moses, and what would be helpful for people to know about him as they are reading through the Pentateuch? Yeah, Moses is a fascinating character. We learned much about him in his early childhood. Uh, it's hard to speculate about like what kind of trauma he went through in his childhood, like so many difficulties, as well as so many identity questions. Uh, So I I find that my students in particular who are say Asian American, they resonate with Moses because he's got all these different identities. Like who, who is he? Is he, is he Hebrew? Is he Egyptian? Is he Midianite? Is he some combination? Is he none of them? And when he's in each group, he never really fits because they all think he's some other group. And so he's got all these competing identities. And early on, I think in Exodus, there's this sense of God calling Moses, in a sense, regardless of who you are nationality-wise, are you going to serve me? And like, there's a sense of Moses learning to follow God. So we get to follow Moses as he learns about Yahweh and as he goes through some, some hard times, uh, so many difficulties that he faces and he, he stays faithful. And so it's just fascinating seeing his narrative and being able to track with him as he meets Yahweh and as he leads the people out of Egypt and so many difficulties that he has. 
and even through his own later, in a sense, rebellion against God at the drawing the water out of a rock. Uh, he's just a, a, a dynamic, multifaceted character who's just fascinating for us to look at. So which was the best depiction of Moses? The Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt, or Exodus, Gods, and Kings? <laughs> I mean, they all have their issues, but if I had to go with one, I'd probably say Prince of Egypt. There's, oh, there you there's go. A lot, uh, there's a lot that's good there, you know, even amongst all the various problems. So. And the music is good. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so for um, a lot of this is a lot of the Pentateuch. Uh, it, as we mentioned earlier, we get to Leviticus, we get to Numbers, and people are reading these laws, and there's a lot of uh, it can create a lot of confusion for uh, 21st century readers to try to go back and understand laws. Uh, from thousands of years ago in, in the Near East. So what advice would you give to people as they're, as they're doing their best reading through this section of the Bible and they come across difficult passages, either stuff that they just don't understand, laws that they're like, why is this here? What is going on with all this stuff? What advice could you give to people as they, as, as they maybe hit with some confusion over, um, over this section? Maybe two things. One would be the historical context, I think, can help clarify some things. So, for example, there's a law in Exodus that says if a child curses their parents, you should kill them, which just sounds extreme in our <laughs> context. Like if, wait, if my son says the F word to me, then I'm supposed to, that's the death penalty? Like yeah. what's going on here? But in historical context, the word curse there means treat lightly. And the opposite of treat lightly is treat with heaviness which we usually translate that word as honor. And so this is the opposite of honoring your parents. And I think honoring your parents in that cultural context actually isn't for children, it's for adults. And the primary meaning is taking care of your parents when they're older. Like there's no nursing homes and uh, social net and so on. Like the only way that you're cared for when you're old is your kids. And so honoring your parents means you take care of your parents when they're older. So cursing your parents means you don't take care of them when they're older, mm. which is basically a death sentence for your parents because there's no one else to take care of them. Mm. And so in that sense, a death penalty for cursing your parents actually is, in a sense, eye for an eye. Like you cursed your parents to death, mm. then that's the kind of punishment that should happen. So in some cases, the historical context is helpful. In other cases, the historical context is helpful but doesn't quite solve the issue <laughs> so one of my other areas besides of exodus for research is the topic of violence in mm. the old testament so uh, i've written a book recently on the destruction of the canaanites which mm. is like the major ethical problem in the old testament and i end that not necessarily with an answer so i, I survey some answers and talk about pros and cons okay. but I, I leave it open i don't defend my own answer which makes many readers unhappy because they just <laughs> want the answer uh, but I, I end it with a call one to lament so you you read these texts and you don't like them and i think it's okay to come to god and say god i don't like what i just read uh, can you help me with this and so the lament psalms i think help us with that give us a model where we can come to God and bring these difficult texts to him. And so we're, we're not distancing ourselves from God because of these difficult texts, but we bring them to God. And we uh, continue to follow him, 
even if we don't perfectly understand everything. So the the speech in John 6, where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and lots of people leave. And then he asks his disciples, are you guys going to leave too? And it's kind of the subtext of the disciples saying, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about, but <laughs> you have the words of life is what Peter says. And so there's a sense of, I don't know what you're doing, but all my other options aren't any better. I know you have the words of life. I'm going to keep on following you, even though there's some areas where I don't perfectly understand. And so sometimes ethical problems, that's just the best place for us to land mm. is we struggle with them. We, we read, we talk in communities, but there might ultimately come a time when we just say to God, I don't like this, but you have the words of life. I'm going to keep on following you and trust you, even if I don't understand in full detail all of what you're doing. Yeah, keeping that reminder that this is the same God that you read throughout all of Scripture, through all of time. God is not different. It's not a new, an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. So everything that you read about him and know to be true about him from maybe from the New Testament is still true of God back then. God has not changed. God's character has always stayed the same. And so if we enter into sections, as you said, these ethical quandaries that maybe we're feel confused about or feel like just down, they're just like, why, God, why? Then, as you said, A, talk to God about it. God welcomes that. B, keep, keep anchored in what you know to be true of God. I know God is merciful. I know God is gracious. I know God is good. I know God is loving. Um, so there was, I don't know why this had to happen or why this was called for or why this was said or whatnot, but I, I know it to be true and I don't need to, I don't need to then say, oh, well then, uh, that's the true God and I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to be scared for, you know, whatever reason we know who, who God is because he continues to reveal himself to us most evidently through Christ. So reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, similarly reading the New Testament in light of the Old Testament is a very good exercise. So don't stop there. Pick up other parts of the Bible and keep reading. And you mentioned getting to either read commentaries or talk with, as a small group, talk about it, whatever you need to do. Don't just read over it too and just kind of say, hmm, that's what's scary. And then just keep reading or whatever. It's okay to sit and wrestle with it and talk about it. And there are many scholars, many people who've done a lot of works about it. So, so go to Bible gateway or blue letter Bible and open up a commentary and read through it. Um, or read Dr. Trim's books about violence in the, in the old Testament as well. Right? So there are people who've spent a lot of time looking through this and do more than just read the passage and say, that looks violent, and then keep going. There's a lot more thought put into it. So that's the kind of a great encouragement is don't get disheartened by what you're reading or don't put it down and say, well, uh, I don't want to pick this up again because that's all part of God's story. It's all part of his story in relationship with people with the people he created and loves every single person he's ever created. So reading through it with that context and being able to ask questions, come to God, talk to him about it in prayer and, and keep anchored in what you know to be true. 
um, it can assure you that keep reading because God's story continues to unfold with a, every turn of the page. Amen. Yeah, as we read and continue thinking about this God that we serve, it's the same God all the way through. And uh, I think that's that's a really important reminder to have as we continue to read the Old Testament. Yeah. So my last question for you is, you've spent a lot of time and energy on these books. You're doing a commentary on Exodus right now, which is a, a large book with a lot of good stuff in it. So you're, you're knee deep, probably neck deep in it at this point. What is maybe one thing that you have learned about this section of the Bible, about the Pentateuch, that you think everybody should know to help them read it better? Yeah, once again, I'll talk about Exodus because that's where my brain is at the moment. Uh, the, the, I think this, the primary theme of Exodus is the service, but I think a secondary theme is divine presence. Mm. And so as you go through the first two chapters of Exodus, God is kind of absent. God doesn't do much directly until you get to the end of Exodus chapter two. And there's this chain of verbs where it's God saw, God heard, God remembered, and God knew and it's totally redundant. Like you don't need all four <laughs> verbs there, but there's this strong sense of, it doesn't look like God's doing anything, but God's active. God knows. And that has been such an encouragement to me in those times when it, it felt like God was distant or not really doing something like, no, God knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And then we get the divine revelation uh, through the burning bush and God rescuing these people in dramatic ways. And then God revealing himself through the law and then the tabernacle. And so this sense of divine presence has been really powerful. And that for me, one of the most powerful texts has been the manna story of mm-hmm. kind of setting up a theology of food and how that connects to, to trusting in God as God provides for his people. But it's not as if God gave enough food for a month. It's day in, day out. And each day, people have to relearn this trust in God. So I think food is a way that God is a gift that God has given to us to be able to remind us to trust him every day. And so as we eat, it's this constant reminder that we trust God. And so I've started a pattern or every week I spend an hour in a prayer chapel here at Biola. I get a chai beforehand because I love a chai. Yeah. And as I'm drinking this chai, it's this kind of this full body experience of feeling trust in God, the gift of this chai, like a way to trust God through drinking something, through eating, that this is the way that God calls us to trust him and he is trustworthy. And so kind of in a sense, feeling that trustworthiness of the divine presence through Exodus has been a really spiritually formative time for me. I love that idea of this theology of food because God could have made us to not require sustenance. He could have made people to not need to eat or drink and just kind of be, but instead he chose to create this thing that does have requirement. It requires a dependence on something. And at first it was the land from the garden. He was I'm providing you. And then that, that, that need, a provision continues through and you see that clearly in manna and you see that play out um, throughout all of scripture in, in today. And we give that encouragement to rely on God, to look for him for dependence. And we see that in food. So I, I think that's a really cool point, this theology of food. And then your idea or what you may note of God is always working. 
there are so many periods throughout all of scripture where we see this waiting. And you see that in Genesis, you see Joseph kind of just wondering, why is all these bad things keep happening to me? I'm in prison. God, what are you doing with this? But he still cho chooses to trust God is working. God is, God is at work in some way, shape or form. You see that with the Israelites spending 40 years wandering the desert. Well, God, what are you doing? What is happening? You see that in the intertestament period, you see this period of hundreds of years where it doesn't seem like God is doing anything or speaking, but then you have these, you still have these people who are having to choose to trust God is doing something. We just don't know what. And in your life today, as you're reading the Bible, you might be in a, your own season of waiting and wondering what God is doing. So if you have that approach of, okay, I can choose, choose to trust that God is always at work and I may not understand it and I may not see it, but he is always doing something. Then the, we see that clearly in the scripture and God will respond to that. He will answer he, and he may choose to make it known to you exactly what he was doing or he may not. But when you enter into this, this relationship with God where you can choose to trust him no matter what, then it makes those waiting periods uh, seem not so quiet, but instead just seem, okay, God, you're not choosing to show me right now. That's okay with me. I love you and I know you love me and you're here with me every day, regardless of whether I see you at work, I see your hand clearly or not right now. So I love how we can see these truths, these stories play out from thousands of years ago in the Bible and then and talking about the Pentateuch specifically, and they still ring so true today because God is the same and God in people, and we're still people and God still relates to us in a very similar way. So Dr. Shrim, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I'm really excited for your a commentary on Exodus. Uh, <laughs> how much farther out do you have to go? It's still going to be a few years. It's a massive work. That so is a massive work. I have no doubt. Well, God bless you in that and uh, excited to see how that works. But thank you so much for your time today talking about the Pentateuch. Really appreciate it. Thanks. It was a fun conversation. Now let's look at some next steps from this episode. First, if you've never read through all of the first five books of the Bible, give it a go. Hopefully now you'll feel more equipped and won't run into the Leviticus problem, right? Stopping at Leviticus because of all of the law language that you find in that book. And the second, consider reading along with somebody else. Not only does it encourage accountability, but it gives you someone to talk through questions with and talk about what God is pointing out to you in your reading. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Charlie Trim. My name is Jason Whelan, and this has been Doable Discipleship. We'll be back with you again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget 
to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes and go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.